Hello, everybody. Welcome to the 21st episode of the Manor Podcast. I'm your co-host, Roger Bodie, joined as always with my best friend and other co-host, Michael Hamilton. Michael, now that our podcast is 21, what type of shot would you buy our podcast? <laughs> I'm not buying any shots. I Nope. No buying shots for me. You're not You're just going to have a mopey old 21st podcast I'll, with I'll nothing? I'll tell you what. I'll buy a tequila shot because I know you love tequila. There you go. Oh, there you go. Thank you. I do like me some tequila. So I was going to say tequila if you didn't. Mm-hmm. I knew you were, but <laughs> <laughs> I don't think podcasts can drink either. They're just like a, they're like a creation concept. Yeah. Yeah. That's fair. It was more of like a hypothetical question, you know, mm-hmm. not a rhetorical question though. Do you know what a rhetorical question is? Yeah. It's a question that you're not intending to get an answer from. I know. That question in itself was rhetorical. Oh. I didn't realize it was a rhetorical question. (laughs) (laughs) Anyways, so today's topic is deck building. You're going to teach us all how to craft Masterpiece Wounded Bull deck building today, (laughs) Michael? I'm going to try to share some some tips on building some good decks. I feel like I have a pretty reasonable uh, track record for making decks. So hopefully I can help some people out today. Okay. So I want to build Levia. How do I make a good Levia deck? (laughs) So if you want to play a specific hero, which sounds like you want to play some Levia, you want to figure out what the most powerful things you can be doing in Levia are, right? I would assume so. So, You don't want to do not powerful things. So the main thing you want to look at, in my opinion, is you want to look for either combinations of cards that produce above rate damage output for what you spend on them or just other powerful interactions that are only available to your specific hero. So Levia has quite, well, I'm honestly not a Levia expert, but I think Levia has several things she can do that are reasonably above rate. Playing cards like Ghostly Visit and How From Beyond from her Banish Zone is very above rate because you're just spending the resources to pay to play them, not actually spending a full card from your hand. So if you play Ghostly Visit from your Banish Zone, you get a you get four damage for one resource and an action point. Very good rate. That's on on par with Rosetta Thorn. <laughs> Doing it. Uh, but you're not having the arcane damage, so. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. Rosetta Thorn's sure something. Um, Ropping Club is also pretty easy to make above rate. If you discard a card, you can do two resources for five damage. The problem is a lot of the discard a card effects take your action point also, so... You have to really work to make that work, if that makes sense. Um, I guess so. So you need to make the cards that are easy to work, work. But don't work too hard to make the cards that don't work, work. Yeah, so you want the things that are powerful, like Romping Club, like playing these Blood Deck cards from Banish. I'm sure there's other things that are powerful in Lavia. Just Swing Big by itself is pretty powerful. And there's some other things she can do that I am not a Lavia expert and don't claim to be. So I don't exactly know the best things but you want to find the powerful things she can do and figure out how to make those things as powerful and consistent as possible and yeah so okay so do powerful things step one to building a deck yeah find powerful things and okay make them work and then it would step two uh, i'm gonna go out on a limb here it would be find good cards to do powerful things so don't play the bad cards but find the good cards yeah so Once you figure out what the powerful things you want to do, you should honestly probably throw a deck together, trying to do those things as often as possible. Um, 
see if those powerful things are like things you can do consistently and when you can do them, are they powerful enough to warrant like building a deck around them? And then if you get to the point where those things are quite powerful, then you want to build like adjust the remaining cards in the deck to like kind of support that or be as powerful without those things as you can. <laughs> so do you have any examples of like good deck building iterations that you've noticed throughout time? What, what, sorry, what do you mean by good deck building iterations? Like decks that you feel like have been developed well uh, over the course of their life cycle or have been doing very powerful things that people have taken inspiration from when deck building. So I guess a good example would be Tark Patel has talked a lot about coming up with Lightning Briar based off of a draft deck where he had many zero-cost attack actions, and he found that really powerful, and he wanted to try it constructed. And then that's where the that's kind of the origin story of Lightning Briar based off a limited deck, and then taking a limited deck, taking the a concept from the limited deck, and pushing it to the extremes and constructed, and seeing how powerful it was turned out to be one of the most powerful decks the game has ever seen and quickly earned Briar and Arata and several card bands as well. Another example of an idea from Limited is the Icelander deck that I ended up taking to Nationals. I found attack actions were really good in my Limited Icelander decks and I wanted to try it in Class Constructed. And again, it ended up being quite powerful to just have these very efficient attacks in your deck in Constructed as well. Other places you can look for deck ideas would be if there's just like a powerful card or interaction that you think is underutilized. Another an example of that would be when Lightning Briar got banned out. Briar still had Channel Mount Heroic, which is one of the most powerful cards in the game, probably, and it wasn't being used at all. So rather than just playing a worse version of the old Lightning Briar, the deck got completely reworked to support this Channel Mount Heroic card that single-handedly was basically worth nine plus damage frequently significantly more than that it could be worth up to like 15 or 18 depending on how the turns lined up another place to look would be taking an existing deck that has some problems and trying to solve them a couple examples of that would be jumping back to my icelander deck i found a lot of the red damage arcane spells to be pretty inefficient and it would be hard to win the game playing such inefficient damaging cards in class constructed where the basically the ass on your deck are pretty high because it's constructed and you're playing as other constructed decks another example would be oldheim taking what was basically only originally a fatigue deck and adding powerful attacks to it so it could have game against decks that weren't just completely folding to fatigue or decks that would actually outvalue oldheim in a long game like dash and prism though i don't think that prism matchup has ever really fixed (laughs) and then the last thing would be uh building decks to counter popular decks so in the Starvo meta, there was both, uh, when I played in Indianapolis, I took a more controlling version of Starvo that I thought was quite favored in the mirror because it had more defense reactions and was less reliant on Kratosine's Rampart and just happy to just block with more three blocks. And then another example would be at the Orlando Calling, where I played Oldheim in the Lightning Briar meta to basically attack the Briars that really were trying to function off no blue, no pitch, and just playing a bunch of zero-cost actions. Just attacking with winners while return was very good against that. Okay, so I think we started off solid with the limited decks and some of your examples for creating decks from scratch, but I'm going to push up my imaginary nerd glasses here and say, Michael, some of your later 
examples were examples of deck tuning, not deck construction. <laughs> so, and I think that's an important distinction because most of the time what I will say is that I am very bad at creating a deck from scratch, like deck construction, just trying to come up with like a novel idea or try to tie together a bunch of pieces for resources in order to just build something that hasn't been seen before. Whereas I think I'm quite good at tuning established lists. I think, you, you know, one of my favorite things to say is I love turning cards that are like D's in lists into like C's, or if you're lucky, even like a B, where you're just like finding those small little marginal upgrades in order to push the deck to like a higher level. And that's something I quite enjoy, like I said. But as far as like, if you're like, Roger, I need you to build me a Kano deck from scratch. <laughs> I'm not going to show you any examples of a Kano deck. I would be like, I have, I would just throw all the wizards cards in it and with no distinction because I just have no clue what I'm doing at that point. So I think building and tuning are very, I think there's a lot of overlap between them. They're definitely not the same thing, but if you had two months where you were just going to work on Kano, learn Kano, and I was like, Roger, you have two months, give me the best class constructed Kano list you can do in two months. Do you think you could come up with something pretty reasonable? In two months? In two months. Yeah, if you gave me two months, that's a long, that's a, I could do a lot of things in two months. I could probably build a boat in two months. You could build a boat in two months? Yeah, I'm not going to tell you what size a boat, but it could be some kind of boat. <laughs> okay, okay. Well, so I think deck building is a lot like tuning, where like you, I guess, sorry, specifically in Flesh and Blood, um, deck building is just taking an idea and building a deck out of it. And then after you build that first deck, it's just tuning from there to make the deck better and better. Right. Right. But like, if you start with like, I guess we'll go back to my boat example. If you start with like a good solid boat foundation that's sailing on the seas and ready to good to go, it's pretty easy to just like tie up some masts and steer it in the right direction, put better engine oil in the motor boat engine oil. Mm -hmm. But if you start with pile of wooden sticks and try to put it out in the ocean. It takes a lot more time to get to that end uh, state of an actual, you know, functioning boat mm -hmm. or deck. <laughs> yeah, that, that makes sense. And I feel like more often than not, I just wind up playing a bunch of wooden piles of sticks. <laughs> no, don't play the sticks. So I, I, I can't help it, man. I look at this hero and I'm like, hmm, I tried. I'm like, I want to play like Reinar or Levia. And then I, I, I put all the cards that I think would be good. And then I take it and I play it in some playtesting games. I load up Talishar and then I'm just out there swinging a bunch of sticks. And I'm like, hmm, so, Icelander it is. <laughs> <laughs> so one nice thing about Flesh and Blood and almost all modern card games is deck lists get shared pretty quickly if you want to look up what other people are doing in any specific hero. It wouldn't take you that long to find a few deck lists that you could use as starting points. Even if you're Yeah, but sometimes people win with sticks though. Not every list that gets published or or, or is like it makes a top 8 is necessarily good, right? I would I would agree. Yeah. Some some you have to be selective about what decks you're choosing. Yeah. I'm not going to name any names or any specific deck lists, but like we've all we've all seen a deck list be posted and we're like what the heck is that person doing i think a lot of people would have said that about you and wounded bull they would be like am i gold drunk he must have six owed limited if you got like eighth place in nationals with wounded bull in your deck but since you won everybody's like he's a genius he's breaking the game <laughs> yeah i uh i have made the or me and tannin were talking and he was like yeah if you do badly with this deck everyone's gonna think you're an idiot i'm like yep 
So you did well with the deck, and I still think you were an idiot. You know, hey. but, you know what, what are you going to do? <laughs> <laughs> I'm just not a wounded bull believer. Still, what can you you're, do? You're not playing any wounded bulls in your Icelander deck. I'm probably just not going to play Icelander anymore. I'm a I'm a Levia main, like I said. I don't need wounded bull in my Levia deck. I already have a million three for eights. Yeah, Levia does not need wounded bull. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I feel like Levia needs the opposite of wounded bull. It needs an I'm a head bull. Because, Healed bull, because fresh bull. You get ahead in love, yeah, and then one turn you miss your blood death, you die. <laughs> or one turn you roll, you roll your scabskin leathers, and you roll the one. And you're like, hmm, well, your turn. I'll just skip my turn. Thank you. I, I actually, I'm not even positive love is ahead. I don't really know how much about love I've said this before because she also needs to set up to get her cards and her discard to turn on all of her banished three card cards. So I don't know. Love is weird. And I know that's why I'm gonna main her. Okay. I'm gonna call up Ethan. And- Learn all the Levia tricks. Okay, okay. I think, well, Ethan's actually put up a ton of good Levia content on YouTube. I don't even know if you need to call him. Just go back and watch some of his many, many hours of Levia content. And you too can um, be a Levia master. I do not like talking to people I don't know that well. Nothing against him. I just am a very introverted person. So the less I have to reach out and have the awkward, like, hey, I'm uh, Roger Bodie. You know, you've never heard of me, but I'm really good friends with Michael Hamilton. And, <laughs> I'd appreciate it if you could help me out. That's usually how I introduce myself in Flesh and Blood. I say, is that, hey. is that really your introduction? <laughs> yeah, dude. You can check my DMs to like when I first messaged Zach or Flake or anybody. I'm just like, hey, I'm Roger. Uh, you don't have to worry about who I am, but I'm good friends with Michael. And then like with Flake, I was pimping you out after you went to Orlando. I was like, you should talk to Michael. He's really good. He's going to be something in this game. And he was like, yeah, whatever, kid. And then like he put you on for like 30 minutes. <sighs> you still have never had a full length, feature length instant speed podcast because oh, yeah. flake likes Tarek more than he likes you and he has a secret grudge against you i thought i had a full length one no it was like 25 minutes i remember because i was like what the heck instant speed podcast is supposed to be like 50 minutes and you're supposed to be the go again section and all that so you didn't you didn't do you didn't do any of that oh okay yeah anyway <laughs> he's a he's a Tarek simp it's okay we all know Tarek's pretty good at this game too so no he's not okay. no he's not <laughs> that's that's a that's a hot take. Is it? Yes. <laughs> Are we airing this? Sure. Why not? I don't care. <laughs> I'm the shit talker on the podcast, right? Oh my I'm the gosh. I'm the yin to your yang. You're your pure your pure good wholesomeness, and I'm the guy who's got to roll around in the mud and the dirt, just picking fights with everybody. <laughs> hey, who have I ever picked fights with aside from Hayden Dale and his garbage political? This right deck that I was completely right was bad. And Tarek Patel, because he won one U.S. Nationals before anybody knew how to play the game. And then, like, one Canada Nationals that, like, ten people and, like, a moose showed up, too. And then... <laughs> and also got second at the Cincinnati calling and almost top-aided the Vegas... Not Vegas, the Texas calling before Oh, are we, are we counting almost top-aids? I got a lot of those. If almost top-aids count towards, like, a Hall of Fame record, I'm, like, almost there. I have three almost top eights to my name, buddy. He has he has a pretty good flesh and blood resume. <laughs> anyway, so deck building. <laughs> <laughs> so if you are looking to build a deck mm-hmm. versus if you're looking to tune a deck, what is what is different in your eyes? Well, like I said, like once a deck's presented to me and I I see how it functions and I'm like, okay. So I guess a good example would be like when we were testing your more defensive Starvo deck, you're like, hmm, I need like 
efficient defense reactions. Like sometimes I just need to be able to block old Starvo or Starvo's attacks a little bit easier. I don't really know how to do it. My current options aren't great, and I don't really want to spend a lot of resources for it. And I was like looking through, looking through, and then I just kind of was like, well, what about turn timber? Turn timber seems like once you're fusing it is a really good rate, and you can take some of your other cards that aren't necessarily performing how you want to do, and then turn timber wound up being like very good for you over the course of that weekend and like efficiently blocking when you need it to. Yeah, definitely. So this was tuning. Was this you consider that tuning a deck because it's just changing one card. Yeah, I didn't. I, I left like ninety nine percent of the deck alone. I just like changed like three cards to have, make it have, be able to block a little bit more efficiently in the spots where you needed it to. Mm-hmm. And like that's what I like doing. Like somebody's like, uh, or like Zach in the Roomblade chat will be like, "Hmm, my Roomblade cards aren't doing Roomblady things enough." And I'm <laughs> so, like, I'll just like go through, and then I'll be like, "Well, I think you have like these options, and of these like options, I think this one probably seems the most promising, and it could probably help you tune up your deck a little bit better." You know that kind of stuff. Yeah. So I guess is the difference between deck building and deck tuning just like the idea stage. It's like coming up with like, yeah, the strategy, the overall, like what is the deck trying to accomplish? Because when you just pick up or start creating from a random pile of cards, it's hard to know what exact operations and mechanics are leading to its strategy. So you even had like, I guess going back to like that Starvo list, like there's so many different ways to build almost every single hero in this game where most Starvo lists were like casino Starvo or very heavy aggressive Starvo. And then like coming in and like trying to pivot away from that idea into a more defensive Starvo was what led to basically tuning that list. Like I probably wouldn't have come up with like a more defensive Starvo or, you know, just looking at the card pools in other ways to build all these heroes. Mm-hmm. But once I'm presented with that idea and I see that it's like a working functioning idea, I'm very interested in like, like I said, tuning and figuring out the best way to execute those ideas. That makes a lot of sense. So then I guess I cannot take cre- any credit for building the Starvo deck, just tuning it because it was our friend Ben Hannon that beat me up with the with a rough draft version of the control Starvo deck that I was like, okay, I want to play this deck. And then I just took his deck and tuned it quite a bit. Yeah, I would say Icelander would be like, hey, I guess Oldheim. The first Oldheim deck was like a deck you built from scratch because obviously Oldheim hadn't existed yet. Or yeah, he was brand new. He just came out in Tales of Aria. So you building and iterating from that first deck and just, you know, blocking as efficiently as you can, playing your efficient attacks, like Enlightened Strike, and then swinging your Icy Hammer. And that was kind of like your thesis for the deck. And you executed that plan that really hadn't been seen before where a lot of people were trying to play old time a lot like bravo old like boomer bravo when he first came out like trying to like play these really big attacks and pummeling and stuff like that and i remember even playing like find all spring tunic was people are like what why would old time play find all spring tunic and ever <laughs> since then it's just been the default chess piece for that hero well i didn't even figure out tunic for orlando i figured it out right after orlando i think it was john that played tunic in orlando and also top aided with old time what chess piece did you game. use in Orlando? I was playing Tectonic Slating. There's no way you were playing Tectonic. I'm looking this up. Hold <laughs> I was playing Tectonic Slating. I didn't figure no, it you out. Weren't. I it remember was, you were in the, We were in the hotel after day one of the tournament, and I'm like, I think this might be. I think maybe the old time deck's supposed to be a tunic deck instead of a Tectonic Slating deck. And you're like, no, you're crazy. I just remember the cat. 
Remember that stray cat in Orlando? I do remember the cat with his little, yeah. little ear clipped. It was sad. Yeah, that was a cute cat. I remember that. I don't remember this old time conversation. <laughs> maybe it was maybe it was after the tournament. We were eating pizza and talking about it. The calling in Orlando was in like July. What? No, it wasn't. This is saying Fab TCG, Michael Hamilton, Oldheim, Deck, calling Orlando, 7-11-21. Fab TCG, calling Orlando. The U.S. National Champion Week in Orlando was Friday 5th of November to Sunday 7th of November. Why do they, oh, they just, is it just code 7-11-21? Like, is this not a date? It's just your deck oh, code then? Seven, 7 is the, it's the day and then the month, 7 11 Oh, that's right. They do dates wrong in North America. <laughs> no, no, we do dates wrong. Everybody else does dates in a way that makes sense. <laughs> day, month, year is such a logical order because it's like the day is the smallest unit, the month is the middle unit, and then the year is the largest unit. So it makes sense to do day, month, year. It does not make sense to do middle, small, large. That formatting makes no sense, but we're already here. No, well, you do go by like what's like the most important thing to know. Like your the most important thing to know is like what month you're in, since that like dictates a lot of things about like the overall activity of your season. And then you want to know like, well, where specifically are you in that month? So you know like what exactly you want to do with your like month activity. And then obviously you got to keep track of what year it is, and you just always know what year it is, anyways. Every so that one goes last, you know. <laughs> uh, okay. It's just strictly better, like the imperial system. Why would you ever use metric? <laughs> metric is so much better. <laughs> <laughs> it just makes so much more sense. <laughs> I'm just in a fighting mood today, huh? Mm-hmm. Oh, you do have tectonic plating. Yeah, yes, yes, there is tectonic plating. Okay, I take it all back. You're, you're, you're bad at deck building. <laughs> I just hadn't figured it out yet. <laughs> I figured it out shortly after the event was over. Yeah. And now, final spring tunic is a standard of old times everywhere. Yeah. Okay, so you get Icelander. There you go. Boom. Even Icelander, I feel like, was um, was tuning more than a completely... Like, it, like putting attacks in the Icelander deck was a new idea, but even then I took like an existing Icelander deck, cut 15 bad arcane damage cards, and put in 15 attacks, and went from there. Or actually cut less at first. I wasn't playing all the attacks at first. And I'm like, yeah, these attacks are good. Let's play more and more. So I was like slowly tuning it by adding more attacks and cutting the bad arcane damage cards. <laughs> but that's still deck building, right? Tuning, tuning is kind of deck building. It's just like small scale deck building. Deck building with a baseline. Because, or maybe all deck building is tuning. Because if, even if you start from scratch and you throw together your 80 card Levia deck, very quickly, you're going to get into the testing process and be like, these cards aren't doing what I thought they'd do. They need to get cut. We could place them with these and try those cards out. And then you're going to keep trying different things until you find something that actually does what you're trying to do. Assuming you're a hero with a sufficiently deep card pool of powerful cards. So maybe that's where Levia has issues. Yeah, it'll be interesting what Flesh and Blood looks like in like two or three years once more talents and like card pools gets deeper and deeper since it's like a non-rotating game. Mm-hmm. I think deck building and tuning will obviously get significantly harder as time goes on yeah just figuring out the best cards for every slot yeah and like from that sense maybe flesh and blood is a little bit has to like really be conscious of power creep from set to set because we've even seen cards now like arcanite skullcap was like the shit it was just the best headpiece generic in the game and then crown of providence comes out and people are like lol getting my bulk binder arcanite skullcap arcanite skullcap still sees a little bit of play but for the most part, Crown of Providence is usually better. 
Yeah. I think every time I've seen or played a deck that like I loaded up on Talishar, I'm like, oh, this deck has Arcanite Skullcap. And I play Arcanite Skullcap. I'm just like, man, I immediately <laughs> wish this was Crown of Providence. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Crown of Providence is very powerful. Yeah. Just fixing your hand or picking up your arsenal and dodging in CNC. It's all, it's all gravy. So I guess, I guess the card would be reasonably worse without CNC existing. Cause I think that's like one of the main uses of the card is they CNC you and you're like, okay, I will block with Crown of Providence. So I guess for tuning a deck, you talked about turning D's into C's and C's into B's. Other things to look at when tuning would be making sure that your cost curve makes sense. So. Figuring out how many blues a deck should play is always kind of tough because, like, obviously you want as powerful of cards as you can. You don't want to be playing your blues, but you do need to have enough blues to pay for your turns. And depending on your hero, you might need more or less blues from turn to turn. So I think you should look at your deck and see, like, how how often your deck can function off no blues. How often, if you have an all red hand, how many of your all red hands are functional? And then... On the other hand, how many of your three blue hands or even two blue hands or four blue hands, how many of those are functional? And if you are not really able to function with too many blues or too few blues, then you should use that to either increase or decrease the amount of blues in your deck. And then the other thing is, if your plan on most turns is to pitch a blue and do things, you want to look at the cost curve and make sure you're able to efficiently use all of the resources from pitching a blue. So one problem with viscerai decks before they had shrill was it was pretty hard for them to spend a full blue on their turn efficiently like they'd have these cards that were cheaper because of rune chance and they'd want to play them and all of them would cost like zero or one and then you had this rosetta thorn came out before shrill right shrill is the yeah it's rosetta thorn came out in aria and shrill came out in everfest okay okay so if you had one costs or zero cost, and then you wanted to swing Rosetta Thorn, it was really hard to make that work off a of blue curve. Whereas now that they have Shrill, they get to go their Mavrin Skies into Shrill of Skull form into Rosetta Thorn, and it perfectly works off a of blue pitch. And that's one of the most powerful uh, three-card hands that deck does. And then they just throw in, they can throw in zero uh, more zero-cost things to make the turn even stronger. So make sure that your turns are able to efficiently use your resources. And then not only that, make sure, keep track of like how often your hero wants or how effective your hero is of playing less than four card hands, because over the course of the game, you're going to be blocking at some point. That's just how it goes. I think even Fi, the most aggressive deck in the format, will probably block with a handful of cards over the course of the three or four, <laughs> five turns of the game it goes, depending on how well Fi drew. But anyways, so making sure that you're understanding what your hero is doing, not only like when you're ahead, but also managing the game when you're behind is extremely important. So that was what was really important about when you were building the Icelander deck is you basically were thinking like, well, I'm basically always behind. So I want to make sure that all of my cards are as efficient or can maximize me being behind as possible in order for me to catch back up. Mm-hmm. Part of being always but, behind is you start behind too. Yeah. So like, I think that's just a lot of things that people usually overlook in their decks where they're like, hmm. Like, everybody knows, like, when you get into that, like, sub-10 health range and the game gets really grindy and sloggy because people are just having, like, really inefficient turns and you're blocking with three to four, like, three cards and you just have, like, one card left. You're like, hmm, I guess Arsenal. And then you block with three cards again and then you have your Arsenal and your card left over and you're like, hmm, I still can't do anything with this two-card hand. (laughs) 
it's not house. really it's really not where you want to be in deck building at that point you know so you have to figure out like what are the ways that in the end game you can play like effective two card hands in order to threaten your opponent back and stuff like that and then so once you've kind of got all this figured out and at least have ideas of how you're addressing all these things the most important thing to do is play test with your decks and once you start play testing just keep all these questions that you had before in mind and all the decisions you made to try to address these see if they're actually like working so if you put in some extra one costco against to try to fix your curve see if they're doing what you expected them to be doing if you put in if you have a lot of if you have too many two blocks and you really need to play four card hands see what happens when your opponent plays anything with any disruption and if your hand still works see what your two card hands look like in games see if you're Maybe the cards you need to keep for your two-card hands are the ones that block for three, and then suddenly the ones you don't want to keep are the ones that block for two, and that's problematic when you only get to keep when you need to block with two cards, and the cards you're blocking are the two cost or the two block cards. So, what are uh, I know you were talking about this before the before we started recording that you were pulling up some of your old uh, you have you have an article about effective playtesting. So, do you want to? Yeah, back when I was making written content instead of this easy podcast live content, and I had to go through an editor and improve a bunch of things, it was a giant hard process. But I, I at least made money off of it. But like, I just like saying whatever I want, you know. I'm an off the cuff kind of guy, Michael. Not a <laughs> sit down and write a thoughtful, pleasant article kind of guy, you know. Yeah, <laughs> just an off the cuff guy. Uh. So one thing in my article that we haven't touched on, though, was using a hypergeometric calculator when deck building to make sure your ratios are right. And no, so the classic is if you want to play, you want to play a certain number of blues where you're most likely to draw at least like one blue per hand. And when you're doing that, you want to know, well, do I, I want to have like a 90% chance to draw one blue in a hand? Do I want to have like a 100% chance? And then you play all blues. Uh, but obviously you, you want to make sure that you have a reasonable expectation of distribution between your blues and not and like your resource cards and like the cards you plan on playing on a turn and tools like the hypergeometric calculator can really help when thinking about stuff like that. Yeah. That actually just came up today for me. I was working on a, a blitz deck and I kept running into hands with where I drew all reds and I plugged it in the hypergeometric calculator and I'm like, okay, so I have 20 reds in my deck. What are the odds I draw all reds in a hand? And it's 5% every hand that if half your deck is reds, you're going to draw 5% each hand will be all reds. So I'm like, oh, hmm, maybe this is a problem. If 5% of the time I'm going to draw all reds and blitz games are going, I don't know, not that many turns, but a non-zero number of turns. And I really don't want to draw an all red hand. Maybe I need to look at that. Yeah. And for a long time, I think Viscerize were playing 21 blues in the Viscerai deck and I just put it in to refresh my memory on the numbers. So if you have a 60 card deck and you have 21 blues, 17% of the time you won't draw a blue. So that's almost like, that's almost one in five, obviously. So if you think about it like that, so over the course of a game, if you go between five or six turns, one of those on average, you just won't draw any blues and viscerize hands typically when he doesn't have any blues are just not functional. You talked about like playing Mauvern Skies and Shrill into Rosetta Thorn. If you don't have a blue and your hand is just red, 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 you're not doing much of anything at that point in time. 
Your, and your red mob red straw hand looks like a nightmare when you don't have a blue to pay for him. Yeah, you're just like red mob, pitch my other two reds, play shrill, I don't <laughs> get go again. I made one rune chain attack for seven. Woo woohoo. I did it. And obviously when you're pitching reds or not or you're not using the right ratio of cards to effects, I guess if that makes sense. So like a common thing we'll say is like, well, wounded bull is a two card eight. Because you pitch one blue and you're behind on life and you're dealing eight damage. So you used the card you pitched and then this card that's attacking and boom, two cards per eight damage. You've made four damage between yeah. two cards. And so if you're pitching a blue and attacking with Shrill, Mauve, and Rosetta Thorn, that means at face value, even if they full block the that's Shrill, true. you're going four cards for 12 damage. So you're exactly at rate. Three cards. Or three cards. Three cards for 12 damage. So you're already like above rate in that situation. And that's not even factoring in whether or not the the trill hit and created even more damage off of that. Mm -hmm. So that's why that card, that turn cycle is like so efficient. But when you're pitching multiple reds in order to do that and then not swinging Rosetta Thorn afterwards, you're now all the way down to like three cards (laughs) for seven damage. And it's like, hmm. Still get the one rune chance, still eight damage. Eight damage, oh, okay. <laughs> if you pitch a yeah. yellow and do mob initial, you get three card eight. Look at that. Which is much worse than three card twelve. Yeah. So that's why I really liked going all the way up to 23 or 24 blues, sometimes even in uh, Viscerai. Because a lot of your blues you're pretty happy to play with anyways. They're just inherently powerful, like become the Arknight, or uh, you're perfectly happy to use a blue Mauvern Skies in order to go again on a turn and stuff like that. And once you go up to 24, you go all the way up to um, a 12% uh, of not hitting a blue. So that's a 3%, you know, obviously increase in hitting a blue, but that can really matter when you're playing a game of Flesh and Blood. So that's what I mean, like just like really tuning and tweaking and like just adjusting those margins in order to make sure that your deck is functioning as smoothly as possible yeah i had a very similar experience when i was working on chain for the first pro tour where i started with a pretty low blue count similar to a lot of the other decks i think like around 20 21 blues and very quickly i realized that i was having too many turns where i just wasn't drawing a blue especially like later in the game before you reach your pitch stack but still when you got like four or five shackles you really need to hit a blue to be able to pay for all these cards you're flipping over into your blood debt area and uh, otherwise you could just like literally just die because you didn't have enough resources to pay for your own cards so it was i think just in general making sure you have enough blues is something that is maybe it's, it's hard to stress it's hard to stress it enough i feel like that you just need to have a lot of blues to play your cards yeah almost like you know you're a deck that just has a lot of zero cost cards and you don't really need the blues. Like I guess Lightning Briar for like that classic example, but played like almost no blues in the entire deck. Yeah. And even the blues they did play were still pretty strong in the deck. Like I'm thinking Blue Captain's Call, where it was just another non attack that was plus two. It was slightly worse than your red minnowisms, but it was a a blue that also had this upside of still just pumping all of your attacks because everything costed zero. Yeah. And then sometimes decks are able to cheat a little bit on that. Like I'm thinking of a deck like Phi, where you could almost count all of your belittles as blues at that point, being able to like tutor them up in order to, you know, have access to that one blue minnowism whenever they want. So they can play a little bit less blues than the typical deck. 
but there is a deck building cost in that they obviously have to have lots of three power cards in their deck in order to reveal to it, and that you're going to also have to pitch that initial card in order to play that belittle as well in order to get that blue. So Yeah, so the most efficient belittle turns probably still you want a resource from somewhere, and pitching a red to get that resource isn't great either, even though you are able to go belittle for that blue minnowism. But February has a hypergeometric calculator built right into it. That's one of my favorite things about it is that the stats page when you're deck building i frequently look at all the little bar and pie graphs and tweak my numbers and figure out like what exact ratios and numbers i want to be playing in certain like sideboarded games between my main deck how i'm you know configuring it for certain matchups like maybe against like icelander obviously i want a few more blues so maybe i'll even go up to like 27 blues at that point you know mm-hmm. That makes a lot of sense. I, I feel like a such a flesh and blood boomer now because I'm still not using February. I'm still using FabDV, and this hypergeometric calculator built-in sounds very helpful. It is. I think I prefer FabDB's like aesthetics and like their use, like the interface for it. I think February feels very like bland and I don't know, just kind of like bare bones i guess would be like a better like it's 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 there to do exactly what you need to do no bells or whistles no fancy anything it's just like boom here's here's the cards here's your numbers go have fun whereas fabdb obviously put a good amount of time into like the aesthetics of the website and like between like the backgrounds and uh the different like the visual sideboarding is actually something like i really like about fabdb that i miss on February. Because you kind of just have to like put the numbers around when you're uh, doing it. But sometimes when I was sideboarding and building lists and stuff like that, I really liked in FabDB like visually seeing like what my 60 cards would look like and like moving the cards around pretty efficiently that way. But I don't know. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. Pros and cons to everything, even what website you use to build the deck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess this kind of also just goes to show that there's like a lot of good tools out there and there's not always just the right answer for what you should use to <laughs> work on. Yeah. I guess anything. <laughs> I don't know. So any final thoughts about deck building before we wrap things up here, Michael? Oh gosh. Final thoughts on deck building. I think again, I think just having very mindful play testing and taking your idea and really giving it a fair shot, just putting the cards that you think are good together and going out and playing with them and really just being honestly evaluating how each thing was in the game will go a long way towards helping you build good decks how about you okay any thoughts you're, you're, you heard it here first everybody build good decks to do good things and have good tournament <laughs> results <laughs> is Easy that what game. it sounds like i'm saying <laughs> oh no Good things are good and bad things are bad. So obviously do the good things and then don't do the bad things. And then you too can win all the callings like Michael Hamilton. Okay, let me, let me try again. So everything in Flesh and Blood can kind of boil down to raw numbers of value since it's how much damage it's dealing versus how much life it is saving you from your opponent dealing. So cards like Wounded Bull are very clearly giving you this two card eight, which is efficient and there are things in the game you can do that are significantly more efficient than that, but two card eight is not inefficient by any means. It's a very, very reasonable thing to be doing. So just like look at your turn, seeing how much value you're getting out of your turn cycle. If you block with two cards, each blocking for three, you're preventing six damage. And then you play your two card eight, that's dealing eight damage. That's a 14 damage turn cycle. And just like 
evaluate how much value you're getting from cycle, turn cycle to turn cycle out of your four card hands. And that would go, that's, that's kind of how you could, that's kind of what I mean when, if the things are good, like if you're playing Viscerai, you block with a three block and then you go mob shrill and present 12 damage. Mob shrill is at a thorn or even more if the shrill hits, then you're getting a 15 damage turn cycle or more if the shrill hits. If you go, Mob Shrill Swarming Rosetta Thorn, then that's a 20, not a 20, that's 12 plus 5. 17 damage turn cycle with four cards. So just like look at how much damage your good turns are worth and your bad turns are worth in terms of raw value per turn cycle. And that's how you know if things are good or bad. And what's nice is that when you're playing on Talishar, it just keeps track of that for you. At the end of the game, you'll get a whole bunch of statistics like how often do you pitch a card, how often, like what was your average life gained or damage ratio per turn cycle and stuff like that at the end of the game. And that's really helpful for knowing how well your deck is performing overall after you've finished a game of flesh and blood. And those numbers are also extremely helpful for monitoring those types of things. Yeah, definitely. Good cards are good. Good decks are good. Make good decks. (laughs) Do you have any final thoughts before we wrap up? No, I mean, I don't know why we just didn't have a 30 second podcast this week. We just meandered on for like, 40 minutes here when we could have just summarized it like that shit man <laughs> it was more fun this way you know and i think we got some good information out there well, i guess let me know if you disagree in the comments but hopefully it was helpful yeah and if you think this wasn't helpful at all please let us know what would be helpful you tell us let us help you help me to help you because yeah. we want to be helpful and we want to do good things, but we can't do the good things if the good things we're doing aren't good. So that means they would be bad things. So help us to do, do good things to help do good things in the world. Yeah, we don't want to do bad things. At least you don't. <laughs> All right. I can take it or leave them. Until next time. <laughs> but what's most important, everybody, is next time you're playing Flesh and Blood, always remember to mind your manners. Thanks for listening, everybody. <laughs> <laughs>